Welcome to the show. How did they get there? I'm your host, John Penn. So Jonathan Parker, it was really uh, exciting to talk to him and uh, really enjoyed their conversation. I hope you do as well. And I mean, Jonathan is a director, writer, producer. He's made uh, several films. The most recent one is a documentary called Carol Dota, Topless of the Condor. And that really surveys the climate of the 1960s. San Francisco is pretty wild time. You're kind of leading into the summer of love. I think I mentioned that in a conversation, which is just an interesting, impactful time. But then this documentary surveys Carol Dota, who was this topless dancer that basically with the advent of the monokini and this idea of having a topless bathing suit she essentially sparked this you know cultural conversation about a lot of things that she may not have known that she was gunning for like freedom of speech and rights for women equality feminism fashion the politicization of fashion if i can use that term which was used in the documentary and so I think it's cool when someone can have that kind of impact uh, without even necessarily knowing or maybe consciously more so than they admit uh, of having that. And I think you definitely see that with Carol. Uh, other films have really resonated with me, particularly The Architect, which was, I think, his most recent feature, uh, narrative feature film. And um, that starred Parker Posey and John Carroll Lynch and James Frain as this architect that basically sets out to build his client's home, but in turn, it's not their dream home. It's more related to what he would want uh, to live in. I honestly really liked the house, um, and I would live in it. There's a staircase that doesn't have a handrail, which is kind of scary, but I think that's really cool, and I really enjoy the film. It's also a film about relationships, about the opposition, the you know opposites attract thing, which is always interesting to see. He likes, I think, uh, from what I've seen, playing around with triangles. Uh, in his second film, The Californians, you know, um, in which Noah Wiley essentially plays a developer in Northern California that wants to build, and he has some resistance, particularly from his sister, played by Eliana Douglas. I think in a film like that, you see um, three individuals, the third one being Kate Mara, who are basically trying to keep things together. They're trying to retain their lifestyle, but they also want this, they're striving for this connection that they may not have known that they were kind of gunning, That am I going to use the phrase gunning for again, that they um, inadvertently actually gravitate towards. I also think the real estate element is interesting. And Jonathan is a real estate developer, more on the commercial side. So he basically uses, not basically, he does, he uses his own experiences in music and in real estate and in art to basically underscore the relevance of whatever project he's working on. And I think that brings an authenticity and a credibility, frankly, uh, to all of his projects. Untitled, for instance, is heavily, you know, it's about art. It's about music. It's about the experimental music. I guess you would call it a scene in New York City. No, it's definitely a scene. It's like, I think it's more esoteric in some ways, but that's kind of the irony of what it means to be part of mainstream culture versus kind of left or, you know, really left of the mainstream. And I think Adam Goldberg's character in that um, kind of follows suit in terms of that philosophy. 
his writing partner that he's worked on several films. I think all of his features are almost all of them. Catherine Dinopoli also kind of brings her perspective. Um, and she, he kind of mentioned that. I mean, we talked about that in a conversation. We also talked about growing up in Northern California, which is a really beautiful area that I haven't spent much time in. Talked about the cultural tones that kind of governed the Carol Dota project. And that just premiered a few days ago at Telluride at the film festival there. I think the big theme that I didn't expect to gain from this was um, about respect. Like, how does the bikini and how does the monokini and how does topless-ness affect the way that men see women and, and just the male gaze? And a few people talked about that in the doc. And I think that is interesting because in the advent of women's lib, you know, which is so important. And even now, I mean, if you look at things that have happened in the past, even the past year, it's very difficult time for women, I think. And um, so I think films like this are really important to cast a light, um, you know, through the power of someone else's experience and then also all the commentary and all the opinions that circulate, particularly from the women in the film, um, I think it's important for, for us to be aware of that from a cultural perspective. Spoke about some of his other films as well, so I uh, really hope you enjoy this. I, I gather you're just like, uh, it's a, um, you're probing, uh, questioning, artists that kind of thing just uh you know what was probing. it yeah probing i like yeah. probing i like that word okay i didn't really think of it as probing but all right we can no we can start with that that's a good word um so okay let's see so where do i want to probe first all right so are you in, uh you're in san francisco correct uh yeah just uh just north of san francisco in uh, marin county and is that that's where you grew up well i grew up in san francisco and marin yeah Mm. And so you've, it seems like that's a theme that's kind of informed your art in a big way. I mean, especially with the latest doc, I mean, that, which I appreciate you sending, by the way, but I mean, that story is so unique. And I think it's really impactful. You know, the Carol Dota topless of the condor, because I, I actually wasn't familiar with, I guess, like the, that uh, setting about um you know the 60s climate uh i guess we're you know post-war but then before the summer of love you see all the music you see all the culture that's kind of um you know sprouting out of the ground and then this political correctness and women's lib uh i guess forms the backdrop for the counterculture so i mean what about that story i guess we can start there what about that story kind of compelled you to you know make a documentary about it well i uh met uh, Carol, um, this was some time ago, like maybe 25 years ago. Mm. Uh, she, uh, so you saw the movie, you saw she, at, at a certain point, she retires from dancing and she opens yeah. up a lingerie shop. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I, uh, I rented her that store. I, I was oh, managing wow. the property. And, uh, uh, so, you know, Carol Dota was a famous, uh, famous figure in San Francisco. I didn't really know all that much about her so yeah. uh i started to uh you know research her story and uh found it to be pretty uh pretty compelling uh just kind of a career that 
was almost uh, 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 created by a, a confluence of random events, basically. Mm. And uh, I thought that was so, you know, uh, yeah, it was compelling. So anyway, I began, I was a budding filmmaker at the time. I began talking to her about, um, you know, uh, interested in doing, doing a, a movie about her. And so I kind of followed her around for several months. Uh, she had a lot of strange kind of MC gigs and, and some yeah. cocktail, uh, you know, some jazz singing, uh, you know, mm. jazz, jazz standards, uh, gigs. And I, I'm a musician. I, I played it yeah. a couple of them with her and, uh, you know, we sort of became, uh, you know, pretty, uh, pretty comfortable with each other and, and, you know, uh, negotiated a uh, contract after some length of time that uh you know uh, we were both kind of poised to sign uh and then in the very last minute she she backed away and mm. i you know i kind of just said okay well you know i moved on um and then about uh five or six years ago i i hired uh, somebody uh, marlo mckenzie who's my co-director mm-hmm on the project because I had, I was finishing up, I had to deliver my last uh, movie. And so I needed some help doing that. And, and, uh, and, and we started talking to, you know, I was showing her, you know, what's lying around the office and she really, uh, she really uh, uh, was attracted by that Carol Dota project. Uh, um, so we, yeah, we just started, uh, we figured we'd do a series and we started doing interviews with research for research and the characters were just these like, you know, too good to pass up. So we started shooting them. Uh, and then, uh, um, the wife of one of the original club owners published a book, uh, right around that time. And there was all kinds of information, you know, that we wouldn't have known. And so we optioned the book and, uh, and interviewed them and they turned us on to other people who were still around. And, uh, so yeah, that's how that project got started. It's a barrage, uh, a barrage of characters. So how was, how was performing with her at that time? I mean, what was, did you, did you, the stage, stage presence that she exudes, uh, in the movie, is that kind of the vibe that the audiences of those gigs kind of felt and that you felt when you were on stage with her? Well, I, I don't know if I would call it on stage, you know, it was a, you know, kind of a little lounge and we were sort of playing, you know, jazz standards. Um, but yeah, she was, you know, people have had a tremendous amount of goodwill for her in San Francisco. Uh, she was a very beloved, uh, uh, iconic San Franciscan. And so, uh, people just really enjoyed, uh, uh, listening to her just because you know, wow, here she's still she's still going, isn't that amazing? And uh, and and it is amazing. But she's she was like a real polarizing figure because on on one hand, I mean, she kind of ripped the whole thing open. This idea of the the monokini and topless bikinis. I mean, that was something that she really inspired the new like the next generation. Of, I don't know if you would call them rebels, but definitely people that kind of push the culture forward and the, the counterculture. But then on the other side, you have kind of the, which is, I guess, to be expected, the censorship and then the objectification. Like, what what is her role in the culture? Is that, did that also attract you? Just the dual nature, the polarity of her, uh, of her presence and her, her mark on the culture? Well, it's a, it, there's a fascinating intersection between, uh, uh, performers 
and uh, performers who, you know, where there is a sexualized component to their act. And uh, it's a, uh, you know, as we, inter- you know, worked on this project and, and did research and interviewed people, um, it, it really uh, uh, is a very sensitive uh, point of, and uh, like, you know, one of our uh, interview subjects uh, says that, you um, uh, the the stigma of adult performance or sex work, if you if you want to call it that, is a problem for women's liberation, and I think that's really uh, really true. Um, so I, you know, I don't know how much uh, intent there was on Carol's part to uh, you know uh, play this key role in the culture, but she uh, she did, and uh, and she certainly was instrumental in the beginning of the sexual revolution. There's no question about that. Yeah, I mean, I think someone in the doc says, uh, like, we don't, we didn't need another Betty Friedan. Like, we already have that kind of that role filled. We need someone that I guess like doesn't give a shit a little bit more, and is kind of more unbridled. And someone that's almost like a loose cannon that people aren't really sure what to do with in the moment. I guess you you kind of need that to to have the impact, whether it was her intent to have it or not, right? Well, there was an interesting uh, we we so we just played Telluride and at the Q and A afterwards, uh, there was uh, an older couple and and they were kind of you know of the opinion that well wow she she really destroyed her life. And, and you know, paid paid the price for it. Uh, and then there were uh, a couple of younger women in the audience who uh, objected to that, and uh, they were like, uh, "We need more Carol Dodas." And I think there is this uh, the fact that she 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 made a career for herself at a time when uh, you know, for women, the options were definitely limited, particularly women, you know, who didn't really have an education mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of funny. She used to, you know, she tried like getting an office job, but she she just couldn't get up <laughs> that early in the morning. <laughs> I can't um, see her in the office, man. I mean, um, all right. So then, but then also another part of it is is uh, um, boobs. I mean, it seems like that wasn't necessarily a, a thing because I guess women were the tradition, uh, so to speak, was that they would breastfeed, and I guess it's hard to fetishize them in that in that way at that point but then i guess post-war i mean and she definitely was a part of it i think fashion and maybe the politicization of fashion was part of it but that was kind of another pillar right i mean that was something that she was would you say that she's kind of responsible at least in some in some way in her way to make that fetishism kind of a reality a little bit more well, yeah, I mean, I think she she probably was one of the first, if not the first, to uh, go through that very uh, experimental uh, procedure at that time of injecting silicone directly into into the breast uh, for for entertainment value, basically. Yeah. yeah so, uh, I mean, there there are others who you know followed suit shortly thereafter, but she she was one of the uh, she the was one of the first, yeah. So that was, and that takes place in North Beach, right? So is that an area that you spent your like youth kind of going to? Or I mean, is that was that kind of like I guess the older guard, uh, like when you were growing up? No, not 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 at all. Uh, but I did. Uh, it was a street, you know. It's only a couple of blocks long, uh, and uh, 
it, there were a lot of music clubs there. And so when I was uh, playing music in my early twenties and the, in the eighties, um, she was still dancing, but that, you know, I, I never saw her, her act, you know, but we, uh, I played a lot of music on the street in the, you know, around early eighties. So you were kind of, you were busking, like what kind of music, what kind of music were you playing? Like you play jazz standards with her. Was that kind of the main, I guess the, the origin of, in terms of the music you were interested in and interested in playing, or was there like, were there different influences? Yeah, no, I was playing in a, uh, what we used to, you know, call a new wave band. Oh, and, okay. Uh, and there were, uh, probably four or five clubs where that was, that was, uh, featured. There was, uh, the stone, there was Mabuhe gardens. That was like a, you know, punk club, a pretty prominent, uh, mm. punk club in the country. And, uh, uh, several others, uh, there. So, yeah, so I was just in a band and, you know, we would, we would play at those clubs periodically. Is it new wave. So that's like what, like B-52s, yeah, uh, yeah, Devo. Exactly. Yeah. Do you still listen to that stuff? I listen to that stuff. I do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if I listen to Devo and B-52s a whole lot, but I listen to music of that uh, era. Yeah. Which, which of those artists resonate with you? Well, Talking Heads, mm. uh, the police. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I was always really into madness. You know, madness. Okay, a little bit. All right, yeah. I'm gonna get into them more. So then, how did you? Uh, so music. So then, what was your house like? Like, what did your family do for work and stuff? Were you kind of encouraged to uh, to play music and and be in the arts, or was that kind of like a point of resistance for uh, you know from your family? No, no. There, uh, my dad was a musician and a uh, classical musician, and my mom uh, was an artist. Um, and uh interior design person so oh, wow. no definitely encouraged to uh always encouraged to play play music yeah interior design so that's kind of like another thing you see that like there's definitely an architecture uh design um the sort of aesthetics of um like houses uh real estate that as a theme is that something that you were interested in kind of because of her did she did she plant the seed or was it some some other uh, origin uh no we our family was in the uh real estate business so my dad i mean he was a musician but he that that's not what he did for a living he he was a uh, in, in real estate and you know he taught me the business and uh so uh i, I mean i have a whole other you know i have a day job i'm not like a uh, full-time uh you know, filmmaker. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's tough to, tough to make a living in the arts. A lot of people, uh, teach and, uh, I develop commercial real estate. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually, I kind of do some real estate stuff too. Some investing. I think real estate's cool. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I guess commercial is a little bit different than what I like. I kind of like more residential stuff, but it's interesting because, um, I don't know, I guess just the idea of, building a space whether it's a home or an office i mean do you kind of when you're doing that like do you do you kind of have the mindset of this someone else is going to occupy this like i want to really like i want to do something kind of unique special here like how, what's your kind of process when you uh when you think about your next venture from that perspective well i mean i definitely think about you know would i want to be in this space um you know either either for a uh, an office or a, or a residence. I do mostly uh, commercial stuff, 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's hard because you, you want to do something that's architecturally, uh, interesting and significant. Uh, but, you know, often that comes with a, uh, you know, additional cost. And so you're always balancing. I mean, it's sort of like making a movie, you know, you, mm. you, you want to, you know, do your imagination is envisioning, uh, things that, you know, have to be kind of, you know, balanced with like how much it's going to cost to do that. But I've always found in film anyway that, you know, being limited in budget has actually been a source of a lot of creativity. Um, not so much, uh, you know, uh, on the real estate side, because something has to actually, you know, function and, uh, and work for people. But, um, it's kind of interesting because we just finished, uh, my partner and I just built a, uh, a hotel mm-hmm. in, uh, San Rafael, which is in, uh, Marin County. And, uh, we, you know, typically we're doing office buildings. And, uh, so, you know, all of a sudden we built this building that's getting Yelp reviews, you know, and so it's like, Oh, it's just like a movie. Okay. Mm. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. uh, Yelp instead of IMDb. All right. So then wait, when does the, so you're playing music and you're getting interested in that. Uh, and then I guess there's the design element, you know, from your mom. So then when does, um, when does the film, like what plants the film seed? Well, we were playing, so I was playing in this band and uh, telling you about, you know, we were playing on Broadway and, and other places. And so the, you know, MTV had just come into, uh, being and so we're thinking oh you know we should make a music video and uh so you know i i can't remember what the sequence of events was but uh, we ended up having a guy make a music video of our band and we my, my bandmates and i didn't really uh, like what he was doing and so we decided we were going to make our own uh later and we just shot it in super eight i had a friend who was uh uh later went on to fame as uh, directing a lot of infomercials. Uh, but anyway, he shot it for us and it was very unusual and very clever. And uh, we ended up getting calls from, you know, uh, uh, producers and, uh, uh, and it got on television. We got, we actually, uh, you know, it, was, it started to play on the Nickelodeon uh, network, oh, wow. which at that time was brand new. Uh, so, you know, I, I kind of started to realize that I'd always been a writer and I kind of felt like, wow, you know, I, I really want to, you know, put the music with the pictures and, and, and do a narrative and not, you know, just be doing, uh, you know, it just seemed like the band wasn't, the, the, the music video did better than the band was doing. So I kind of felt like this was going to be a better change. What was your, uh, what was the conceit or what was your vision behind the video? <laughs> <laughs> well, the the song was an an instrumental, and uh, my bandmates uh, and I, you know, came up with this thing where we were it, there were three of us, and we were playing a kind of uh, life size version of somewhere between jacks and miniature golf, okay. and uh, my my uh, friend, you know, made all these wacky paper mache brightly colored uh implements and we were all dressed in uh very uh, bright bright colors and crazy uh you know uh plaids and stuff and uh and then we just went around this very picturesque neighborhood of san francisco called seacliff uh and uh played this game in the streets yeah hard to that's <laughs> good it's, and in terms of like the cost i mean paper mache i mean you can't you can't go more cost effective than that so then when that happens and you start doing that i mean at, at the point when the video comes out 
And I guess it starts going picked up by, you know, these networks like Nickelodeon. I guess that's the equivalent of what viral is now. So then what is, is music still something you want to pursue at that point? Or do you are you bit by the film bug? And then do you want to take a transition in that in that way? Well, they weren't mutually exclusive. I figured if you, if you make a film, you have to have a score. And so the first the first feature film I made, I I scored it with a with one of my bandmates. Um, so I, I found I could do I could do both. It was I was trying to find you know an art form that I could put all of the things I wanted to do in the same project. So it really was you know it was writing, uh, it was visual decor and uh and and music yeah i i find that about your films like they look very um very clean cut very pristine and it seems like it's almost like uh like a jewelry box like each shot uh that you you have on on screen and then the music too so the first was the first film that was the bartleby right uh based on the herman melville uh, yeah, well, that was the first. Uh, that was the first feature with you know with professional actors. Yeah. What did you do before that? Oh, I had made some you know wacky shorts, you know short films, and a couple of couple of short films, and uh, yeah, and maybe another music video or two. And you're you're basically just. I mean, how are you learning to do this? Are you just picking stuff up as you're doing it, or I mean, did you? Did you train from someone else? Like, how did you, how did you kind of, uh, uh, you know, grasp how to do this the way that you do? Uh, just by uh, watching Laurel and Hardy, pretty much. <laughs> really? You know, it's just like, it's a static camera. Uh, and, it, you know, they're usually almost full figure. And, and it's, it's quite, uh, um, balletic you know the way they move and the way they mm. dance and you know they're they're graceful uh it's sort of a you know they kind of uh they love each other you know but they are always you know yelling and banging on each other and uh i don't know there's something that really grabbed me about that and seemed like very simple filmmaking and so uh i you know i just kind of started very simple like that that's the sim simplicity that that's the origin but then it seems like that i mean the films as you kept as you kept doing it but even right off the bat um i mean again like it seems like this the set design the attention to detail was significant so then was that um did it kind of begin with simplicity and then you you kind of thought that in order to make the films that you wanted in order to make the music work uh you know the way that it's edited the performances that you had to kind of invest more into the detail than the simplicity or like or did the simplicity theme in in your mind kind of continue to resonate still well the simplicity i'm, I'm mentioning is really more about the camera because mm. you know i'm not really a uh um, i'm not really a uh camera you know person uh, i'm more of a you know putting something together in front of the camera so the the art direction was always always a from the very beginning, something I really wanted to pay a lot of attention to. I was very influenced by Jacques Tati. And so he's, uh, you know, for, from a sound and a set design and a set decoration and a, uh, uh, you know, a kind of a uh, shots and cuts type of writing style. So I kind of, you know, uh, tried to do that type of thing a little bit. 
then the first feature that you made. So at that point, you were kind of more, you felt that film, again, was kind of the right medium for you in terms of getting the creative satisfaction, being able to explore the themes. Were you Was storytelling a part of it, a big part of it? Or was it kind of, you felt that, you know, film kind of carries the versatility for you to to harness all of the things that you want to do in kind of one package uh, in one thing? Well, both. I mean, uh, I, I, one of the things I wanted to harness in one package was the writing, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the screenwriting and, and so the story. And I mean, I'd always, when I was a little kid, I don't know, you know, 10 or 11 years old, I drew, you know, a uh, hundred and something, you know, comic strips with this kind of, you know, collection of char- characters that repeated like a, like an old fashioned, uh, you know, Peanuts style mm. uh, comic strip. And so I was always, you know, writing. And so, you know, the storytelling uh, and the story writing was, was always really, really an important uh, central point. Yeah. So then why, uh, why Bartleby? Why did that, uh, uh, why did you feel like that was the first, I guess, what compelled you about that story? Well, what compelled me about the story was that I, I, I worked in that office, uh, oh, really? you know, when I was a property manager. Uh, and so I kind of recreate when I read the Melville, uh, I mean, I read it first in college, but then I came back to it later uh, when I was just sort of looking for something to, to make a movie out of that was that you didn't have to pay for. In other words, it, it's it's uh, it's old enough that it is not copyright restricted at all. So you can you can do that for nothing. And uh, when I read it, you know, later uh, when I was looking for something to do, it really struck me as like the office that I worked in. And I kind of even sort of patterned the characters uh, a little bit off of people who worked in the office uh, with me. Um, so, yeah, so it, it really uh, resonated on, on a personal experience level. So you worked in the, the nicer office in the beginning or the, the office kind of at the end where they moved? Yeah, the, the nicer one in the beginning. Yeah. Okay. okay, that's good. Yeah, you need to have some windows. Wait, so And you found kind of the tropes that exist in the film. Like, I mean, I don't know if there was a guy staring at a vent all the time, but it seems but the, like the David uh, Paymer character. I mean, that character is very relatable in terms of his motivations. So, And you felt like you were seeing... Uh, Glenn too. I mean, you felt like you were kind of seeing those tropes uh, in real time, uh, and that informed the story or the the film that you wanted to make. Well, I was updating the story, so the story was written in the 1860s, and uh, in that story, Bartleby he he stares up at a little uh, I can't remember. I think it's a it's a small window Mm -hmm. uh, at the top of the the wall. You know, they're in they're in the financial district. They're just looking out on other brick walls. And so I, I translated that in modern day to him staring at this air conditioner, this, this vent. And then what was your, uh, what was kind of your process? I mean, I guess going from the music videos and then, you know, to the shorts, but now the feature in terms of directing um, the actors, like, especially, I just think about Crispin, uh, you know, Glover's character, uh, who doesn't have that many lines, but he is. I mean, he's the eponymous guy. So, like, how do you, uh, how do you kind of approach that? Is do you direct each actor kind of differently, um, tailored to their own style, or do you, um, do you feel like it's important to have a consistency to to carry the theme of the the project along? Well, 
Well, there's a uh, there's a tone to my adaptation, which is obviously has a uh, you know an element of uh, satire and, and comic, uh, but but so does the original Melville. And with people like Crispin and David Paymer, you know, they if they get a script like that, and you know, I don't know whether they, I don't think they knew the Bartleby story before they, they got my script, but you know, they, they know how to do that. You know, they, it's very clear what's going on there and, you know, they don't need a lot of, you know, uh, direction. Uh, it's, uh, so, you know, it it was kind of an automatic thing. They're they're both very, uh, very strong, uh, actors. Is that kind of the, is that the, uh, I guess the magic or the work of casting, right? Like, do you feel like if you cast right, it is kind of like that, whatever the project is, uh, in terms of it being kind of like osmosis, the actors are picking things up. It's very kind of natural and it's not as, um, doesn't feel as forced for them. Yeah. Casting is like 95% of it. Yeah. 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 And uh, I mean, I've made four features and there was only one time when I felt like I had to kind of readjust an actor's interpretation of the part and and it was you know once i explained the readjustment he totally got it and then he was totally fine and so yeah it is absolutely uh all about the casting do you write with actors in mind generally or or does the project kind of you have the script you release it and then uh, actors kind of get interested in it and then they they approach it I don't, I don't write with actors in mind. And I, I always wonder about people who say that they do because mm-hmm. if they, if they say they're writing with an actor in mind, well, the actor probably has played, you know, 20 different roles. So which mm-hmm. role are you writing with that actor in mind? Because if they're a good actor, they're going to be different in all 20, 20 parts. So I, I usually try to have real people. Uh, in mind, you know, when I write and then, uh, you know, that seems to be better for me. And I mean, so, I mean, you mentioned that um, there's definitely a satirical, I guess the story is satirical, but your bent on the adaptation is also satirical, probably a little bit more, um, I guess it's an adaptation of the story, but it's also an adaptation in terms of what the current time is or what the time was at the time. I don't know what the hell I just said, but I, uh, you get what I'm saying. So um, did you, do you feel like you, did you have the autonomy um, or did you feel like you did to, um, to kind of carry that story because it is a legendary um, writer? Uh, you know, did you feel like you could do that or did, were you kind of precious about like, Oh, how would, how would Melville feel about me writing this line uh, for this character? Well, um, you know, that's one of the, these things. If you started to think about, uh, am I being respectful for the story? Um, uh, you know, to the story, to the original, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna screw yourself. Um, you know, I, I, I was trying to remember a quote I just saw on a screen in Telluride. It said something like, uh, uh, you know, nobody would start a project if they weren't, you know, both, you know, ignorant and ambitious or something like that. Mm. Uh, so, uh no i i felt like you know i was uh earnestly trying to capture the spirit of melville's uh story and i stuck i mean the plot is pretty much exactly uh, the same uh all i did was update it and by updating it what you're doing is you're really satirizing your own time uh now, melville i think was satirizing his own time but mm-hmm. how you update the story because the story is very well known you get to kind of make fun of your own um, 
you know, social manners. It's a kind you know, comedy of manners in a way. Is comedy the genre that you, I mean, I think you would, would you describe all your films uh, as comedic? Yes, they are all comedies, yeah. uh, despite what um, some people may think, <laughs> with the exception of the, the documentary. That has com- a lot of comedic elements, too. Uh, but I guess, yeah, I guess the story itself. Um, but, uh, so then, because the next one, uh, that was the Californians, right? That yeah. was with the Noah, Noah Wiley. How did that, that story was, was that something that you experienced uh, on a day to day basis? Because he's a developer in that. What, what, what kind of compelled you to think about? Uh, how others, I guess others, like even if it's the guy's sister, would react to this development? Like, what is it construction or destruction? I guess it's the is the dilemma. Like, how did you um, how did you select that for your next project? Well, the 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 story, I mean, the script is based on a Henry James novel called The Bostonians. Mm-hmm. And so what I was doing was, uh, again, same as Bartleby, I was I was updating a 19th century novel. And, and when, when you do that, you can kind of, you know, you're, you're satirizing your own time. And again, Henry James was also satirizing his time, you know, when he wrote the Bostonians. But if you, if you read, when I read the Bostonians and I was looking around for, to do the same thing to adapt an old, uh, you know, book that you didn't need to get a copyright for. So, uh, you didn't need to have the rights for. So um, when I read the Bostonians, it was like, whoa, he's like, uh, this character uh, is exactly like uh, somebody who would be living in Marin County in that era and, and it, as, as an environmental activist. And uh, I, I, I was a developer. And so and my partner and I, you know, were doing projects and we would frequently, our projects would appear before uh, the planning commission and have to get approved and you often would have uh people um you know speaking uh in favor of them speaking, mm. speaking against them uh so i kind of used i took that that uh that um you know argument between developers and environmentalists and and you know kind of inserted that you know into this bostonian story whereas um <clears throat> Yeah, in the original Henry James, you know, the young woman is a, uh, she's just kind of an inspirational speaker. Mm. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so it was, uh, it, it made for a nice uh, updating of that story. Did anyone, uh, did anyone ever sing when you were, when you were at one of those hearings uh, against what you were trying to do? Uh, no, um, <laughs> but I, I wanted her to be a singer because uh, in the Henry James, she's a, extremely charismatic speaker Mm. and i thought well that's going to be hard to convey because you know some people may think she's charismatic Uh, i don't know so i thought well you know she's like coming out of this environmental activist world so you know what if she's a a folk singer and uh like a you know like a protest folk singer from the old Mm. days and uh and so I thought that was a good way to do that. So I got a guy, uh, a guy who's in Nashville to write, write songs along the lines of, you know, that character. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So it's, it's a little bit, it's challenging because it's um, because at one point she kind of, I think she has uncertainty maybe even from the beginning as to why she's doing this in terms of the message that she's conveying. Cause she's not like, I don't think that she thought that she would, eventually like become kind of almost like a puppet for Ileana's 
character, her cause, right? I mean, is that kind of how you saw it? Or did you see her as having her own mind? Well, it's, uh, um, you know, staying faithful to the James story. Uh, she, she really was a, uh, um, you know, a very talented young woman. Uh, and, and she loved to sing in, in my story. And in the James story, she really uh, got a lot of artistic expression out of her, her speaking uh, and, and attracting people to, to her cause. And uh, I, I think, uh, you know, the Ileana character is like um, unsure of her own speaking voice. So she finds this, you know, very attractive young mouthpiece for her. And it works out really well until, of course, she you know, she falls for the, uh, for the brother. And yeah, so her commitment, you know, she, she also had a father who was, you know, raising her to be this, you know, spokes, spokeswoman and, uh, and singer songwriter, uh, and hoping for, you know, that to, uh, advance his own, uh, you know, fading yeah. career. That's Keith Carradine, right? Right. It's pretty good. All right. So then you did that. Um, as you're making these films, there's the, there's the kind of, the idea that you had at the beginning about, I guess, creative control and about, you know, whatever the budget is, it was that kind of the main priority or did that, did that change at all as you kind of kept making films? Uh, well, I'm not sure what you're exactly what you're asking. Like the, it seems like when you began, um, like you said that regardless of the budget, um, you know, even if like, even in the music video, if we have someone putting together, you know, uh, with the paper mache thing like as long as we have creative control it seems like that was kind of a, a priority at the beginning i mean do you feel like that that kind of resonated um throughout each film like did you always kind of think about that as a priority that you wanted to kind of establish or was was your impetus of making films did that change uh, as you kind of kept doing it well, I've always had creative control. I, I I don't think I would do it if I didn't because I'm I'm doing it, you know, as as artistic expression, you know, more than I'm doing it like to try to you know make money or something like that. <clears throat> so uh, I, I've always had creative control because there was wasn't nobody else nobody else ever had enough uh, in you know money into it to t be able to tell me what to do. So. Um, but I always, you know, I, I was very collaborative with everybody. So it's, I always brought, you know, people to the project who were going to add, I felt would add something. Cause that's a, I think that's a big theme in the next, the next one, which is untitled, right? I mean, um, so how did that, how did that kind of come about? What did you, um, what led you to that project? Well, our, um, our family is uh, in the art world to the extent that, my mom uh, was an artist and uh, and she and my dad had a collection of art. And then when my son, who was in high school, um, he became very, uh, he was always an artist and he became very interested in contemporary art. And uh, so I kind of started, you know, paying a lot of attention to contemporary art, which was very uh, popular and uh at that time, um, still is. And, uh, I just, you know, it kind of reminded me of, I felt because I had all the music gigs that take place in Untitled, I've, I've played. So I've, oh, wow. I've been a winning musician. I've, I've played, uh, you know, experimental, uh, Stockhausen type, uh, uh, you know, classical pieces. And I've played in, uh, orchestras. 
And, and I always, you know, there's this uh, part of uh, music where there's, you know, uh, contemporary music, there's a lot of, you know, using unconventional instruments and, and, and unconventional uh, tonality. And I always, and then when I was studying the, you know, when I was kind of like paying attention to the contemporary art world, I thought, wow, you know, it's like, uh, there's a venue for really, really out there contemporary art and that people are, are flocking to. And then on the music side, an experimental concert, you know, like at Merkin Hall, for example, yeah. uh, uh, you know, is like attended by, you know, nine people. And, and, and I had that also had, had that, uh, experience. So I kind of, you know, devised this story where these, the, uh, you know, experimental performer, you know, with, you know, with nine people in the audience meets the, um, uh, uh, the art gallerist who decides to characterize what he does, not as music, but as art and it belongs in the gallery. And so it seemed like it was a good story there. Do you like talking ads you mentioned, do you, when you, um, when you think about bands music that you like artists that you like, do you, um, do you gravitate to melody? I mean, or do you feel like kind of the protagonist of that, that melody is, um, kind of designed to be commercial and kind of further that that aim. I mean, what's your take on that? Oh, no, I think, uh, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of, uh, songwriting, melodic songwriting, you know, from, uh, the Beatles to Gershwin, to, you know, all, all eras and, uh, and contemporary stuff. And, uh, so I, that was, yeah, I mean, I was kind of, uh, I mean, I, uh, I appreciate uh, a lot of contemporary music, um, and the guy that uh, did the score for Untitled, David Lang, is a very, very uh, serious and well-known composer. And he uh, he started the whole. He's one of the founders of Bang on a Can, mm. and uh, uh, so you know he's written some uh, beautiful, beautiful pieces, uh, contemporary, um, and they're very innovative in their uh, uh, you know, uh, melody and tone and, uh, harmonies. Um, so, uh, it's not like I, I, I mean, I do like, you know, con contemporary work as well. How was, uh, how was working with Adam Goldberg? I mean, how was that, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I think his genius casting definitely, I mean, he is very much that character in the film. How do you, uh, how was it, what was it like working with him? How was that experience? Uh, he was great. Uh, it was, a it was, uh, probably one of the, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, very, very good experience. Yeah, he's the type of guy that, you know, he does that himself. He makes a lot of music and he makes a lot of sounds and recordings. And so when he got the script, he's just like, oh, you know, I, I, I am this guy. <laughs> you know? So it was, again, you know, the casting made it made it easy. So then uh, then the architect, that was the next one, right? So then that, um, man, how did you feel about that house? Because I loved it. Uh but that Eric McCormick, I mean, his character didn't like it. So how did you, uh, like, what did you think? I mean, um, how did you build that, by the way? How did that kind of set design work? Well, we built a little bit of the bottom floor practical uh, interior set. And then we added the the rest of it uh, uh, digitally, digital effects. No, I guess, well, different. I mean, how was... Um, would you did you is that the kind of architecture that you kind of gravitate towards like i guess you would call that what like more modern modernist or do you kind of um stick with like older 
um uh you know like vestiges like just older stuff what do you what kind of like what moves you in architecture well i i have lived many years in a in a 1906 uh craftsman home and i've also we my wife and i built a house uh, about uh i don't know six or seven years ago uh which is modern and so i i pre- i like both i appreciate both um and yeah, it's it's modernism, but it's kind of fun to make fun of modernism because uh, there, you know, modernism. A lot of the architects, um, uh, you know, they they have a theory, and uh, whether somebody can actually live in that, you know, live with that theory is another story. But there are, you know, architectural history is uh, has a lot of uh, contains a lot of uh, very uh, extravagant artists who you know were pursuing. Uh, theories and uh and then the people just had to make the best of it you know living there is that kind of the the uh would you say that's the main the theme that you want wanted people to kind of resonate from that like is it the idea of i don't know if it's the like maybe it's the eyes bigger than the stomachs or just this this idea of theory over practice and practicality i mean what what do you feel fundamentally um that film you know is about i mean in terms of when you were when you were getting interested in that project and when you were making it? Well, I think it's a, it's a comic uh, uh, juxtaposition uh, or that it's had a lot of comic potential. uh, Somebody having to live in this uh, architects, the architect built his dream house, Mm. not necessarily his, his client's dream house, but then also obviously there's a story there about a, uh, um, you know, a, a, husband and wife who's, um, uh, you know, the guy's very practical and counting every penny and uh, inserting himself very much into this uh, administration part of the process. And the wife, is, who's an artist, is much more, uh, 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 you know, open and airy and uh, disappointed in her husband and, and, you know, then falls for the romantic uh, architect only to, you know, find out uh you know, it doesn't work out so well in the end. Do you feel that that sense of like opposites attract? Because those characters, Parker's character and Eric, I mean, they're very much opposites. Do you feel like that is a, a recipe that's kind of um, that works? I mean, um, like, or do you feel like you have to have more things in common than maybe those characters necessarily at least seem to do on the seem to have on the surface? Yeah, I think uh I think you probably uh that's a a problem in that relationship uh there's you know in a way that's probably irreconcilable and the relationship was actually based uh on my uh co-writer uh Catherine uh, Catherine Denopoli, who uh had a uh, uh a short a brief marriage to uh to a guy and it was very much that dynamic and we kind of based that part of the script on on their relationship where did you shoot that we shot that in seattle everett wow. everett washington is that is that some um what was the what was the choice of that i mean because it's really obviously really beautiful i mean how did you uh um how did you kind of pick that spot to shoot our uh, line producer uh was aware uh, had, had just shot a film there and it had a really good uh, tax credit for filmmaking. Uh, so we took the production there to take advantage of that. And, and it, yeah, it was beautiful. It suited the story very well. And the kind of the day-to-day 
stuff that they go through uh, when they're kind of when they're building the house. I mean, I guess that's John Carroll Lynch too. How did you? Um, was that kind of did that also come from your uh, your real estate experience? Did that kind of inform that, or, or did you pull kind of pull that from uh, like other research that you did about that topic? Oh yeah, no, I, I definitely used firsthand experience. Uh, I mean, really, my in every movie I've made, I've used a lot of firsthand experiences, firsthand work experiences. Uh, the my uh, real estate career has proven to be a uh, uh, infinite uh, source of uh, comic material. So there you go. All right. So then it seems like uh, yeah, I think that's why the films feel so um, so authentic. So then, on the new um, documentary, documentary, so that premiered at Telluride, like you said. So how was that? How was that experience being there in, in Colorado and all of that? Oh, it was great. It's a beautiful. I had never been there before. It's a beautiful, small, late nineteenth century mining town. It's almost entirely in its original uh, uh, state. Uh, you know, very few uh, new buildings and. Uh, you know, you take a gondola. We were staying up on a at a hotel on the at the ski resort, and you take a gondola into town and back, and it runs all night long. Well, not all night long, but it runs till midnight. And uh, the whole town devotes itself to the film festival. And there are a number of you know venues, but they're all within walking distance. And it was a very fun uh, experience. Great festival, great movies. There's a bunch of good movies coming out uh, this fall. And then, and you have Lars Ulrich, right? Produce who produced it. How did you meet? How did that kind of? Um, how did that happen? How did that relationship begin? Well, Lars had seen uh, Untitled, and uh, it's it's kind of what his dad was doing: experimental music. And so he thought his dad would really love to see this. Uh, so he reached out to us, uh, and I I wrote him back, and you know sent him. Uh, you know, sent him the DVD and he saw, you know, my return address, San Rafael. Well, that's where Metallica's headquarters is mm. in San Rafael. He assumed I was, uh, you know, in New York and, you know, 30 years old or something like that. And uh, so, yeah, we just kind of, you know, we just, we, we hit it off and uh, have been friends, uh, you know, ever since. And he's just helped out uh, whenever he can, you know, on the film project. Man, uh, well, this new film, um, you know, I love, I love the film, and I think it's, um, I, I think it resonated with me because I work in mental health, and I think that's another stigmatized um, topic in our culture. Um, did that um, when you were making the doc and you were talking to all these people who lived in this time in the '60s? Did you did you kind of learn or pick up something that you didn't? necessarily expect when you started whether it was about um that area that venue her or the culture i mean what did you what did you kind of learn through that experience of making um the carol you know dota movie oh learned a lot um probably learned more than i have on any other film uh i mean these people you know we interviewed uh, 40 plus um ex uh, bartenders and dancers and musicians and club owners and uh uh even a congressman and uh it, it's you know it's before my time uh when we are you know the beginning of our story uh, so uh you know these people live very different lives than than I have and to get into that world 
was really, really an eye opener. Um, it just, uh, it, it, it's, it's, there's a, uh, a rawness to life and, uh, a kind of, uh, uh, vibrancy to these people's experiences, um, that, you know, I, I just found really, uh, really interesting and, uh, and surprising just because I, it's not a crowd that I've, you know, had such a, you know, been able to just interview them all and really find out what their stories are. Yeah, you definitely feel that when you're in it. And it's kind of like um, the characters or the actors in your films. I mean, through osmosis, you kind of feel like you are there and uh, you kind of have a, a yearning to be there and, and see what it was like. But I think the film is like it's so much so many firsthand accounts that kind of paint the picture and then also form the setting and the backdrop for what that was that was like. And I think that's really powerful, um, powerful, you know, film and in documentary and uh, really appreciated, you know, talking to you and all your work. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Oh, hey, thanks very much. Uh, appreciate the opportunity and uh, glad you uh, like material.